Welcome to episode 198 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? Everything. Man, it's the Lord's Day. <laughs> well it's, said. I mean, it's it's the Lord's Day. There's there's not much else to say. I mean, things things could always be better because there's a heaven waiting for us, but they could also be worse. So that I have no complaints. Mill. Yeah, that post mill. Yeah. All right. Well, then that's as good a segue as any into a little affirmations, a little denials. What do you want to start with? Well, it's going to seem really hollow when I say that everything's good and then I have a denial, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> So let's uh, let's start with affirmations and hope that the listeners forget that I said that by the time we okay. get to denials. Kick us off. So I am affirming this falls in the category of book recommendations, I guess, if you follow our, our uh, taxonomy of affirmations and denials. Uh, I have been reading a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. And uh, it's by Thomas Watson. It's yes. available just about anywhere, I'm sure. I haven't seen it on Monergism, but I'm sure you can get it on Monergism. Um you know, I was I was talking to a friend the other day, and this is going to get a little bit more serious, I think, than I intended it to. But I find myself just weighed down by our world right now. Like it, this it, again, like I just said, everything's great. Now I'm going to talk about how terrible it is. Um, I found myself the other day, I was walking from my car to work. I work at a hospital, and so I have to park in a satellite lot, and I have like a five-minute walk to work. And I just found myself like crying on the way to work. And so I took a little time to like stop and think about like, why am I crying? And the stress of this world had just gotten to me. Like it had just gotten to me that we live in this pandemic. We're isolated from our friends in a, in a lot of ways from our families. Um, there's a lot more strife and contention in the church right now than there has been in my, you know, remembered experience. Um, People that we used to be able to sort of count as reliable allies, we find ourselves on kind of opposite sides of a really significant discussion that we're not used to having to kind of engage in polemics against some of the people that we find ourselves engaging in polemics against at times now. And the weight of it just fell on my shoulders. And when I got home, I was like, all right, what do I have in my library that I can read that will help me? to sort of address this. And so I started reading The Art of Divine Contentment. And it's basically an extended uh, exegetical sermon or or sermon notes or whatever on when Paul says, I've, I've learned in every way to be content in every circumstance. And, you know, it's just been a, it's just been a salve to my soul to read. I'm not through with it, but just to read it and sort of like marinate in the wisdom of the Puritans who in many ways had much more difficult lives than even, even in this pandemic that we're experiencing, um, you know, they, they faced persecution in ways that we have not. And I don't think will for quite some time. Um, they faced sickness and death and it was just a daily reality in a way that we're only starting to understand in this pandemic that, that there are people out there who are sick and dying and, uh, it won't be long before if, if you don't know someone who has been sick, uh, you probably will in, in short order. Um, so it's just been really, really beneficial to my soul to just read this book and really like, meditate on what it means to learn contentment. He makes a big deal out of the fact that Paul didn't say he found himself content 
or that he he was content. He learned to be content. And the whole point is that learning to be content is synonymous with learning to depend on Christ. Um, so just pick it up. Like I said, I'm sure you can find it for free somewhere um, or you can buy. I'm sure there's dozens of different editions out there. I, I would be really surprised if Banner doesn't have an edition. Um, Art of Divine Contentment, Thomas Watson. It's just super good. Oh, Banner definitely has an edition. I'm sure they do. Is it? In, do they have it in the peer to paperbacks? Yes, I believe so. Okay, then yeah, I'm sure. Then pick that copy up. Um, otherwise, I'm, like I said, I'm sure you can find it on um, Monergism. Has it? I, I would be really surprised if they don't. Pick that copy up. It's impossible yes. now for me to not sound like a Puritan fanboy, and I realize some are probably like rolling their eyes and throwing their audio devices right now. But the bottom line is, I find the older I get that the Puritans are not just like eternally contemporary with the things that they write about and what they're trying to address, but now more so than ever, because so many of them lived, I think as we mentioned before, in times where there was, they were working in literal plague environments. And so the things that they're writing just seem to like hit and resonate so strongly with me right now that in some ways they make more sense now than when I've ever read them. And so- You you can't go wrong, but it, I also kind of want to. Can I just like fanboy you and like affirm your affirmation in that? I, what I really appreciate is you had a moment of where you're you're being very honest with the stress that you felt in your life, and I think that there's something phenomenally healthy about saying, "Let me go back to the scriptures and also let me look at my library and see what might be a salve for my soul right now. What might be a, a useful resource?" Yeah. And I want to sink myself into that. So I just want to affirm you in that approach. I think there's something really wonderfully healthy and mature about that because so often we just are like, yeah, things are really tough and I'm going to turn on the TV or I'm going to do something to help me quote unquote unwind. Those things aren't bad in of themselves, but how much better is it to say, I want to go to find something that's like going to be a medicine for my soul. And of course yeah. the scripture f- should be our first stop, but along that journey, there's nothing wrong with finding, picking up. This is why we collect libraries, right? Having a library of resources that would come alongside and help us as we understand and study the scriptures to really give us something to track with that's pertinent to the time and the experiences and the emotions that we're feeling right then. That's all really good stuff. I, I just think that that's like a really wonderful approach. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why the Puritans really are that eternal contemporary, not, not just because they lived and ministered in a time frame that has a lot of similarities to what we're experiencing with coronavirus and with government overreach and all sorts of different things that we're wrestling with that, at least in my lifetime, the church in America has never really had to deal with that I'm aware of is they're going to the scripture, right? This is just an extended meditation on, on a passage in Philippians. And a lot of the most classic Puritan works that you go to, the reason that they resonate, the reason they're so effective is because they are just scriptural reflections. They're yes. not trying to contribute their own wisdom. They're not trying to contribute some new innovative way to look at things. They're they're just good, clear expositions of scripture because that's where we find the words of life and and they're only words of life to us because of the Holy Spirit's testimony to and in us. So check it out. Art of divine contentment. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's a dozen other 
you know, Puritan works that you could go to. Bruce Reed comes to mind um, that that would act as a salve in this kind of situation where, where you can go and just sort of be ministered to by these saints from, you know, 500, 400 years ago, 300 years ago in ways that a lot of our contemporary literature, not because there aren't people who can write like that. You know, we're going to do preaching casts. I'm sure that Joel Beakey has ways to apply the scripture that he's applying to his own congregation, his own life. But this is a new situation for him. So it, it's taking time for our generation and, you know, the people we look to as leaders to come out with good reflection and good thought on this as they're still trying to figure it out themselves. But when we look at this saints from years past, um, they've already done the hard work for us. And now we can, we can let them minister to us in a way that um, they may not be able to in other contexts. So and check it there, out. There's like an essential element there that has staying power because this is actually really well connected to what we're about to go into with this episode and talking about reform preaching. The reason why we keep bringing up, I think the Puritans or some of the others that Dr. Beakey has spoken of is precisely because they stay so close to the scripture. It's not as if they're like creating here's seven principles for better living in a pandemic. None of that stuff has staying power. It doesn't age well. All this stuff ages exceptionally well because the scriptures themselves are the eternal contemporary. So of course it's better to say that all they're doing is relying on the scriptures and they're expositing them. And because of that, we find the writing is just always relevant. Of course, that's the bottom line. It's that there were men and women who are willing to do that because it's easier sometimes to just try to manufacture or create something that it markets well or is principle or stepped base. They never make, I think, any bones about the fact that obeying God is a challenge in all yeah. circumstances, but particularly in the ones in which they lived. And so we find because they just went right into the scriptures. And of course, as we said before, anybody who could say, you know, writing a thousand pages on a single verse is not enough because there's still marrow in there that I want to suck out. It's, yeah. I think it's that devotion. It's that attitude that's the very thing that's so captivating because it puts the scriptures as the centerpiece of all knowledge and wisdom yeah. and lets all of human reasoning fall behind that and far beyond it, that because of that, we just find it is always relevant. And so maybe it's more like, where are the Puritans of our lives? Like Dr. Beakey, I think is such a good writer because he writes puritanically, like right. in that same realm, yep. with that same attitude. So where are those guys? Keep keep writing that way. We need pastors. We need <laughs> preachers. We need writers. We need theologians that are like that. Not to have like the clever, witty responses. Not they're going to have yeah. some program for us to follow or some new thing for us to try. But the ones that just want to keep going back to the scriptures to understand and, and suck out yeah. all of that beautiful marrow. Like it's it, those who say that the scriptures and really behave this way are really like a, a mine or a well in which you cannot plumb the depths of. Those are the ones I want to say, yes, I will read what you write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you? What are you affirming today? What do you got? Well, we got like strangely deep and and somewhat like beautifully melancholy there, like, (laughs) like in a lovely way, in a way that says like, it reminds us that we joke about that post mill, but this idea of that, of course, that, that, yeah, things are not as they ought to be here and that sometimes it's okay to weep in that realization. And so therefore in the weeping, in the being brought low, that's exactly where God exalts us and lifts us up in that humility and that sense that all is wrong with the world that we come to what is right with the world through Jesus Christ and the promises that he gives us. And then we come to my affirmation, which seems like super trivial compared to (laughs) everything that you've just said. Uh, Mine is also in the media realm. I'm affirming with uh, music again, and this is like a brand new album. It's uh, by a band called Lifelong, and the album is called... um, 
Actually, now I just lost it. I think against the wave, something like that. But it's Lifelong is a melodic hardcore band They're from San Diego, California. The lyrics are fantastic. So this is in the realm of if you like a little bit of screaming and you like a little bit of melody, then this is right up your alley. But <laughs> I realized I'm trying to do something different with these affirmations of music because I want to get something like for all people. So that is for my brothers and sisters that want a little bit of screaming for those that might be like yourself, Tony, that are like, I don't need to have somebody screaming at me when I'm <laughs> in my car on my way to work. Then I want to recommend our firm with another album that's equally good, but a little bit older. It's by Norton Hall band and it's called my hope and stay hymns project volume two. This is a group that has basically rearranged lots of beautiful hymns. And I would point out in particular their version of my hope is built, which is the solid rock on Christ the rock. I stand so good. It's all the traditional elements with a little bit of new musicality, especially there's like a intro or an interlude between the verses that is so good. So <laughs> my hope is built the solid rock. So you've got both. Now you can go to lifelong. If you want a little bit of something that's going to blow the papers off your desk. If you're looking for something that's a little bit more traditional that I'm going to point you to or affirm with the Norton hall band. So have you heard of Norton hall band? I have not, but it sounds interesting. I should check it out. Yeah, super good. This is just one of their many albums, but all they do is actually, I think it's connected to, so this is totally off the cuff now. I think it's connected to some seminary. It basically came out of like a group of students writing music and re-envisioning some of the traditional hymns. But on this album, it's got All Creatures of Our God and King, Come Ye Sinners, Come Ye Sinners. Like that's a song that I feel like we yeah. ought to sing more. That's so good. And their version is fantastic. Uh, he will hold me fast and how firm a foundation. So there's just five tracks on that, but you can, again, you put this in, like, just be ready for some church time. Like don't, don't put this in. If you're, you know, need to like do heavy lifting at work because you're, <laughs> you're going to need to like stop and praise the King as you hear this yeah. stuff. So yeah, that, that's every, all, all every good. time you suggest a screaming band, the first phrase that, comes into my head is if I wanted someone to yell at me while I drove my car to work, I would put on a Paul Washer sermon. <laughs> so, yeah. Cut right, to Paul Washer saying, window. I'm talking about you. Yeah, I don't know why you're screaming at me. I'm talking about you. Do you think we could get Paul Washer to come on our podcast and just say those things? Probably not. Not if he not if he's listened to us how we talk about his sermons and theology. I, I think probably not. Uh, I don't know. The, maybe I don't. Know. He seems like a pretty busy guy. I don't know if our podcast is big enough potatoes for him to take time to do it. But I don't know. Somebody must have. I feel like he's must have enough sense of humor that he could probably laugh about all those things now. Yeah. But maybe that's my impression is wrong. I've, all I've done is just seen him interact. So yeah. Like, but mainly it's on stuff that's like highly staged, not in a pejorative sense, but just where he's giving an interview or he's part of a yeah. documentary series. And I always like to think that Paul Washer, he's probably a funny guy. He's probably, <laughs> probably, he's probably a jokester. Like he probably has a good sense of humor about stuff. I'm, I'm sure he laughs about that sermon. Maybe not. Uh, well, he did an interview at one point where someone asked him about it. He's like, I don't even remember saying that. And like, then he, <laughs> he went back and said like, yeah, yeah. How I said that was not right. Like he, he's one of the few people, you know, we've, we've talked about the Lordship controversy at length and he's one of the few people that I, I think has actually been a little bit more self-reflective about it. I don't know how much it, he's made changes in his theology or presentation as a result of it, but I think he's been a little bit more, um, I guess humble about some of the 
criticisms and concerns that people have expressed. There are some others who more or less have doubled down um, throughout the history of that. But yeah, I, I got no hate for Paul Washer. I, I'm mostly I. saying a little bit of a joke, but I do think about that. Like if I wanted someone to, to beat down on me in a, in a audio format, I'd probably listen to Paul Washer more. So, <laughs> well, that's the funny thing about this is, and I don't want to harp on this music thing. Cause this is, I have a penchant toward that particular style, but usually it gets classified as like what's angry music. And this is what's so unique in a wonderful way is if you take this album lifelong and this is the kind of album I would encourage you to pull up the lyrics alongside as you listen, Uh, especially their title track above the waves, which is just super catchy and and a wonderful, I would say example of this particular style, but it's all like amazing uplifting language. So it is like this weird dichotomy where is there such thing as like a happy yelling? And I'm not talking about exclaiming. I'm talking about like something it's, there's still like force behind it, but it's coming with all of this amazing language. It's almost in the same way where, you know, I listen to a lot of like a say contemporary praise and worship music and we get debate about the style and the quantity and how, you know, I would say like how deep some of that lyrics are. And then I, sometimes I'll listen to, let's say like Shylin. And, you know, like, just kind of like, I would say contemporary, but wonderfully theological Christian hip hop. And yeah. I think, well, that's a strong message there. Like there's something about like the having really strong lyrics, even if the music or the musicality isn't, let's say, as strong as other pieces. That's the stuff I want to listen to, like being preached yeah. at or preached to or having all this wonderful theology come at you hot and heavy and hard in the course of music is really a beautiful thing. And to me, it seems like there are certain styles of music that lend toward that type of expression just naturally. And yeah. so I think in some ways that's why I ended up with listening to like a lot of hardcore Christian music is because the lyrics generally tend to be really strong and forward. And if you, for most part, the bands have a, a very rooted theologically. So I think that's where it ended up. Obviously I'm just defending this for myself now because I can <laughs> tell you're like, let's just move on. We don't need to talk about this anymore. No, I, I was, I was actually going to say, <laughs> I think part of why that is, is, those styles are more about the art of music than they are about anything else. And you see the sure. same thing in, in secular arenas, right? You have, you have, I'm not a fan of Eminem by any stretch of the imagination. And, and I, I don't listen to his music, but if you read his lyrics, if you listen to him talk about his music, he's much more thoughtful about his lyrics and what he's saying and what For he's communicating sure. than like, like, uh, like Miley Cyrus, who's just putting out like <laughs> sappy, stupid crap that's designed to just be like appropriated by the masses. And sure. like, that's the difference between like, um, you know, like the screamo music you're talking about where there is a, there's a level of artistry in it. And like Chris Tomlin saying, you know, the same thing over and over again, like it's, there's music that's meant to be consumed. That's like fast, almost like fast food music. That's meant to be consumed by the masses quickly. And then there's, there's the more like, artistic kinds of music. And one thing about the contemporary worship scene that they get right is like they, they sing songs that are simple because I think at least on one level, they're trying to produce songs that can be sung by the majority of people. They're, they're trying to write for contemporary audiences and congregational singing. But yeah, you're right. There are some mediums and some styles of music that just lend themselves. I think to like superficiality and simplicity, not in a good way. Like the the songs that have a lot of la la's and fa fa's and like those those kinds of songs they just it's just cotton candy like it's delicious but it's got no no nutritional value. Wait 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 just to be clear so I know and everybody else listening, are you saying 
that Chris Tomlin's God's Great Dance Floor is the equivalent of just eating a bunch of cotton candy? Yeah, and then throwing up all over it, <laughs> and then eating it again. Oh, man. Yeah. So basically, we can never get Chris Tomlin on this podcast after that. I have no desire to get Chris Tomlin on the podcast. <laughs> well, actually, now I'd like to get him and Paul Washer together. Same podcast. Yeah. We just Maybe. let them talk. See what that. See what happens. Yeah, and also like we're just gonna offend every contemporary evangelical. We can Let's think of. do it. Also, like this stupid trend of like writing like fluffy, repetitive choruses to classic hymns. Just, just don't. Friends, don't let friends do that. I don't. I don't know why you're clapping, Chris Tomlin. I'm talking about I don't you. Know why you're clapping? Uh, so many great references in this conversation already. All right. So, I, I mean, we're only into affirmations, but we're already off the rails. I have to I ask. I do have one question before we move on. I'm going to, I'm going to circumvent you, you a for question. a second. Well, you can ask in a, in a second here. Okay. That song above the waves, that's what it's called, right? Yeah. Would you say that it calls you out upon the waters? <laughs> <laughs> I've been sitting on that joke for like three minutes now. I no, just had to was, get it out there. Listen, that was good. I appreciate that. Um, it doesn't, it's, I would say it's like the exact, uh, actually it's the exact opposite of that. So it thing. drowns you? <laughs> no. <laughs> it it <laughs> plants your feet firmly on the beach? But it is, it is more about, I would say, like the struggles of life and God yeah. using those things, all things for good. Is, is it more as about like the celebratory sense of like, all you need to do is just like walk out on the water and you're yeah. going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I now, I've, now I've forgotten my question that I was going to ask. Oh, the question was what you just said there. We've kind of touched on that before, this idea of like, why are people trying to modify the hymns? Which, by the way, not what Norton Hall Band is doing. So if you're yeah. like, I am against like preconceived, like trying to insert your own little choruses into yeah. beautifully crafted hymns, then no harm here. You're not going to find that stuff. But was there something you were thinking of? Cause that seemed like it was hitting a little bit too close, a little bit too personal. Like you had, well, I mean, we were mind. talking about Chris Tomlin. So obviously like he did that to amazing grace and like, that's not the worst example of that. I can't think of any other clear examples. Joy to the but world. Like, like, well, yeah, joy to the world. Like there there's, they just do it. Like, I, I don't, I don't know why it, it's, it's because, Modern singers are not used to songs that don't have choruses. And so for some reason, it like messes with their brain when there's no chorus for them to repeat. But it it just that I don't know, it just doesn't work. So they they do this. They basically take a hymn and make it not a hymn anymore. And that's like people. I think people think that a hymn is just another style of music. And there's a certain level of truth to that. But a hymn is a song that's designed to teach theology. Like that's right. that's not necessarily the definition of a hymn. But when you think of a Christian hymn and the difference between a Christian hymn and like a Christian chorus, a chorus is like a repetitive thing for you to like, like continue to repeat yourself. That's like that's the point of the Christian chorus. A hymn is really much more intended to teach theology, to teach music. Like it's a teaching tool rather than just like a, like a uh, like a verbal vomiting of of sentiment, which is kind of what most Christian choruses are like. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. We've, this maybe is maybe mine more than yours, but certainly a trigger. And we've talked about this before. So, and that's, what's interesting is like, if, for instance, if you take up the solid rock, I can cross the solid rock. I stand that there is repetition yeah. in that. And yet it's not like a right. traditional, well, let me say it this way, not a contemporary chorus the same way we would think of it. But this is what I love. It's like, that's a simple piece of music melodically and yet there's an immense amount of intense theology in that. And in some places, yeah. actually, I would say this, 
I know some people, you know, these are dear brothers and sisters to mine, but they know words like, for instance, like propitiation because it's in him still. Yeah. That, and that's oh, yeah. the place where it comes to. And so it's wonderful to be able to say, yeah, you know why that word is being used there? That's like a, a legit specific word that is expressing and teaching a particular truth. And we've moved away from it because we think it's an archaic word. And where yeah. it comes back into our culture is in these traditional songs. In the same way, like when people sing Christmas carols, there's a lot of traditional language in there we just don't use anymore. Yeah. And yet that is like a foil or an entry point into like deeper conversation about theological truth. So Pro hymns all the way. Yeah. All yeah. the way. Well, we should move on to the negative yeah, portion of our show. That was, that was just affirmations. <laughs> just affirmations. All right. Go, what do you got for denial? So some people who know me online might sort of roll their eyes at this a little bit because I'm not always good at this. But I'm denying contentiousness and denying specifically contentiousness online. This is kind of an extension of something we talked a little bit about last week. But like social media is designed to foster contention. And it's designed to do that because that's what keeps you coming back to the site. That's what keeps on increasing the clicks. You have to remember social media as a whole, you are the you're the product that's being sold. And so the more they can bring you back, the more this used to happen when I was an admin in the reform pub is people would constantly be talking about, oh, all I'll ever see is the negative stuff. Well, that's because the algorithm is designed to keep bringing up the stuff that's driving controversy because those are the threads that people keep commenting on. So I'm denying contentiousness. And I just want to read our we, we did this. This was our sermon text for this morning. And it just it just hit me. Not suddenly, but it hit me in a, a different way. It's from Titus chapter 3, and it's uh, verse 9. It says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And, um, you know, Pastor made a special point. The word foolish, because of the way it's constructed in Greek, foolish applies to controversies, genealogies, un, uh, dissensions, and quarrels. So it's not saying never have controversies. It's saying avoid foolish controversies. It's not saying never look at genealogies, which would, would be strange because the Bible has genealogies. It says avoid foolish genealogies, avoid foolish dissensions and foolish quarrels about the law. Right. And I, I think sometimes where we go astray is when we get swept up in controversies and dissensions and quarrels about foolish and unprofitable things. So we have been very clear about our position about wearing masks and how important it is and how it represents fidelity to the biblical law and, and fidelity to Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think that that's a foolish controversy, but it can very quickly become a foolish controversy if all you're ever doing is fighting about it. Right. And if you're not ever going back to what the scripture has to say about the subject, right? If, if all we're ever talking about is whether or not they're effective, whether or not they actually block particles or not, um, or whether or not they're effective to keep people safe in a pandemic, if that's all we're talking about, then we might as well not. Because there's going to be experts who say they don't they don't work. There's going to be experts who say they do work. And those are important things to talk about. But unless we can bring this back to how this applies to our life, how this how this either furthers or hinders our growth in holiness, then I think that's the definition of a foolish uh, controversy and it draws contentiousness. So I'm denying that. Talk, talk about theological things. Talk about secular things. But all things need to be brought to bear uh, by the light of scripture. Right. That's a good one. Uh, what strikes me about that is this reminder that all of us as Christians, but people generally, we're just not good at nuance. And so no. we just like throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
this idea of either people saying, well, you shouldn't argue with anybody or you should just let everybody put everybody on blast and let them have it. But it's not even that we need some kind of middle ground there. It's that we need like that spiritual ground that is you, we need to fight over that, which is worthy of fighting over. And we need to let everything else just go by the wayside. We need to be willing to be not offended by some things. Honestly, we need to let love actually cover a multitude of sins. But then other times where we know that we need to stand up and do something, we need to, we need to say that thing. It's just, that's just really difficult to do because it's easier just to say, I'm not going to wear the mask or, I mean, I don't know. We must be on a streak now for a number of consecutive episodes where we mentioned masks. I don't know what that is, but we're going strong. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a big deal. It's, it's like a huge deal and I'm going to keep yeah, talking it, about it. It, it is. A, it is a huge deal. And it's in that, in that vein, let me share my denial very briefly because it's, it's somewhat related to that, but not quite. So I'm just denying against why is it that it seems like things that are either, why is it that embarrassing things seem to happen on the Lord's day in church when people gather together? <laughs> So my quick story is we were, our church has been having uh, the weekly Lord's Day gathering outside for the past couple of weeks to, to allow people to have plenty of social distancing space and to give just a better sense of being able to gather a little bit more people together because they have a nice large piece of property. And on this particular Lord's Day, just several hours ago, it's still fresh in my mind. I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm sitting in the back. It actually uh, was playing music this morning and then it came around and sat in the back and we were partaking in the Lord's supper. And I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened, but just as the pastor was starting to explain communion was going through all this, the, you know, the beautiful biblical language and the promises right at the moment that he started, I breathed in and sucked a bug straight into the back of my throat <laughs> and it got stuck there. But here's the thing. Not only is it like, you know, you're kind of like uh, choking on that for a second in church, but because everything is happening with COVID, I was like, don't cough, don't <laughs> cough. You're going to give the wrong impression. That started a chain of events in both my mind, like physiologically and physically where I could not help coughing. And my wife is elbowing me because, she, and she's literally saying like, stop it, COVID, stop it. People are going to think that like yeah. you're freaking people out. So I, I had to like literally get up. My abs hurt so bad, all because a bug got sucked into the back of my throat and I couldn't contain myself. So I don't know what that affirmation is. Or, sorry, that denial is about. I guess it's just about how those things happen in church. And it's just, in the end, it's it's just all funny. But I did feel super bad that I'm sure there are people in my congregation that were like, do you hear that? This dude is here and he has clearly got the COVID cough. And really, <laughs> like I wanted to get up in front of everybody and be like, my bad, everyone. It was just a bug, guys. A beetle just got into my mouth and <laughs> I'm sw- trying to cough I it out. I swallowed a bee. <laughs> yeah. I, I know an old lady who swallowed a bee. I don't know why, but she now has COVID. <laughs> it was so bad. I And it was like, I mean, we've all had this experience, right? Where either something funny happens and you're in the Lord's house in worship or something. And you know, like every instinct is pushing against like, this is not the time to, you know, laugh or it's not the time to cough. And you just, it, it makes it even worse. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Well, it's, it's funny. It, the world is like one giant example of what Paul has to say when he's like, I wouldn't have known what to covet was except for the law. And now, you know, this is a paraphrase. Exactly. Like I, That's I can't saying. stop coveting exactly. everything. You know, it's um, it's funny because, you know, I work in a hospital, so we're extra careful. Uh, and we had all these enhanced screening kinds of things that have to happen when you come into the building. And a, like a week and a half ago, somebody in line coughed. 
and they were like drinking they were drinking something <laughs> and they like sucked the liquid into their their trachea instead of their esophagus yeah. and they coughed because they're like choking and they made them go home and said they couldn't come back to work for three <laughs> oh, days my word. and so now every day when i'm standing in line well, i don't go in every day but every day that i'm at the hospital to work and i'm standing in line i'm just sitting there thinking like don't cough don't cough don't cough and then of course the second i start thinking about not coughing it's like all of a sudden my throat starts to constrict and i'm yes. like I, I can't i can't breathe i have to cough it's just like when someone's like actually this would be really mean if, if i was like all right whatever you do don't don't itch like everyone in our audience just started scratching their face right it's it's just the way it is that's right. funny yeah so that's my story it was it was one i mean it was great to celebrate the lord's supper just after i got myself under control like i was literally like almost on the ground coughing i don't, I don't know what happened it wasn't even that bad but it was just like the bug hit me i mean have you ever sucked in a bug which just like shocks yeah, oh, yeah. you too and I was like, I think it's still there. Like, you know what I mean? You're just trying to like cough it out. And I'm sure yeah. everybody was like, this is just a bad time to be in a public place with a cough. This is, uh, we're going to have somebody write a review on our webs on our uh, iTunes that says that this is when they stopped listening to the show. The other day I had, I had a, um, I had like an interview I was doing and I was getting ready for it and, uh, I was eating breakfast and I sucked a little bit of egg back into my throat and then I coughed and it went up into my sinus. Oh. And so I was like trying to get it out of my sinus and I was panicking. So I was like, I'm going to have to go into this interview with this egg in my sinuses and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I finally got it out <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, how, all, all the different things that could happen. I first I choked on a piece of egg and then I coughed it into my sinus cavity. It was a bad morning. You know, it really was prescient that long ago we were selected to be one of the top 50 healthcare it's true. Organizations or podcasts. We uh, inadvertently have ended up speaking so much about matters related to health and wellness and yeah. how to deal with sinus egg, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I think we're probably in the top ten by now at least. And that's not it's not <laughs> we because we've up. it's not because we've gotten better. It's just because other shows have pod faded. So there's just less of them now. Survivorship just, bias. Yeah, it's a contrition game at this point or an attrition game. Yeah, fair enough. Well, at, yeah. at the risk of making this entire episode about this, <laughs> what, what we talked about so far, yeah. maybe we should uh, actually talk about Let's Dr. Beaky's book. We're yes. so close. We're so close to the end of this, right? I know. We're only, this with this chapter and then the next one, we're done. That's it. It's all we're done. We're going to finish it out. So uh, we're on chapter 23, which is, uh, as we mentioned last week, last week was about kind of like, basically was like preach the law, right? Preach, preach God's glory, preach man, preach man's fallenness, all of that stuff. And now Dr. Beaky kind of brings it home and it's preach the gospel. So the chapter of the tale is preaching the gospel to the heart. And I just found this chapter, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a little more introspective recently or what, but like this chapter was just beautiful to me. Like it was just one of those chapters where you read it and you just feel satisfied. Like you've had a good, like a good steak to just chew on and enjoy for a little while. It's really helpful because I think what Beaky does here is uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't been tracking along or just hearing the title for the first time, it's possible that it's coming across as like cliche or trite. Yeah. I think we should acknowledge that there's something about this. If he's writing a chapter that's entitled preaching the gospel to the heart, it at least implies 
that this doesn't always happen. Right. So there's something there he's trying to address. Yeah. But what I loved is that I, when I read this and then I look forward to discussing it with you, I always think, man, we're going to get like way off the topic here or we're going to go a little bit far afield because I think he always has great stuff that like propels my mind to think about yeah. so many other things that yeah. it's not just cliche, that he's actually addressing something deep and profound. And so the first thing he talks about is this idea that Jesus really is the prerequisite of yes. Christian love and charity, which on the face sounds like, of course, but, yeah. the, but what he goes into is saying things like, well, if we love God and we love people, then our passion will be to preach the gospel of Jesus. And Christ is the overarching theme of every topic in every branch of theology. Right. Now, when I read that statement from him, I was like, wow, here we go. Like you're, you're going way out there. You're making a really stark and profound and very solid statement. And he says, like, this is not to stand in opposition to the doctrine of God, but to understand that the mission of Christ is always the great means by which the Lord glorifies himself yeah. before men establishes his kingdom. And so I wanted to start with this idea because I've thought about this before. Sometimes, and this is going to sound strange, but sometimes I, we talk so much about Jesus that I think, well, have we lost God the Father in this? Yeah. That are we, we've lifted Jesus up and appropriately so because he is the son of God. But at the same time, we seem to have like a over-indexed approach to one portion of the Trinity. And what Beaky is saying here is, well, this is why. He's trying to give us, I think, an, a lane in which to travel. It says, this is yeah. why we're trying to exalt and lift up Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we're actually following what is the biblical mandate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that... I don't know who it was that said this. It, it might have been Dr. Beaky, actually, although I, I suspect it probably wasn't, is I heard someone once say, a, a theologian, basically that all of the solas, all of the five solas of the Reformation collapse back down to solus Christus, right? Sola, sola gratia, grace alone, really is Jesus alone, right? right. Uh, justification by faith alone really is justification by Christ alone. Now that I say that, actually, I think it was probably R.C. Sproul, because that I'm hearing it in his voice now, um, right? Uh, Sola Scriptura is not just this book alone, but it's the testimony about Jesus Christ alone, right? That's that's what the Bible is. And all glory to God alone only happens because Christ did it all for us. So, so this chapter, you know, preaching the gospel to the heart sounds trite and cliche, but when you read it, what the chapter really is about is that Jesus is the gospel. That's part of why it's so damaging when people talk about like living out the gospel. And I understand what they're trying to say, but actually we'll find out, I, I read a little bit ahead, but we'll find out next episode that when you collapse living out the gospel or preaching the gospel with with what it means to live the gospel, you know, living out the gospel is sanctification. Right. The gospel itself is justification. So when you actually confuse those two things, you have confused law and gospel, you've confused sanctification and justification. And what this chapter does that's so strong is if you remember that Jesus is the gospel, if Jesus is the gospel, you can't confuse justification and sanctification because you you can never be Jesus. You can never be the Messiah. You can never die for the sins of many, right? And as long as you keep that in the forefront and, and Christ is the central element of your preaching, that doesn't mean that every single pack, you know, um, passage discreetly is, de is definitively about Jesus, but the whole scope and aim of the scriptures is... Jesus and how through Jesus, the father is glorified, right? That's, that's just Westminster confession chapter, right. chapter one, right? That the, the scope of the whole and the consent of all the parts is to give all glory to God. Well, that that's done only through Jesus Christ. 
If it wasn't for Jesus Christ and for what God would do in, you know, God, the father would do through the son and applied by the Holy spirit, then there never would be any glorification of the father on earth that because humans would never glorify the father. So even in the garden, you can make an argument that this, this element of the father purposing salvation and the son accomplishing it and the spirit applying it, even in the garden, there's elements of that. Although I, I wouldn't say that Adam and Eve needed a mediator prior to sin, but the, the, you know, when God walks with them in the cool of the day and, and they glorify him, all signs point to that being the son who is actually walking in the garden with them. So it's important for us to remember, and this chapter really calls it out, that when we talk about preaching the gospel, we're preaching, as Paul said, preaching Christ and him crucified. Yes. Um, you know, that's that's the matters of first importance that Paul's talk about, or Paul talks about. Right. Actually, the, 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 man. It's like we planned this. That was exactly <laughs> what I wanted to quote from is I loved that. Again, if you're like a, a Sunday school grad, you've heard a lot of this stuff before. And sometimes I think it's hard if you say to somebody, well, distill down some essential matters of theology from the scriptures that really should be the things that we put our minds on every single day. Because there's a lot of things that we could think about, presumably. And he, Biggie does go back to this idea of like the matter of first importance. It's interesting, of course, that Paul's using those words that he himself is trying to distill something down. So when he says, no, the first important thing is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen these, all these verbs in that sentence, all those essential elements. I just love that. It's so rare in life that somebody narrows something down for you of a, a vast body of knowledge into such a particular and fine point. And I wonder, and what I was challenged with is, do I think on that as a regular part of my life and daily living, that these are the matters that are most essential and that again, to be, uh, to be willing to be unoffended in other things yeah. is to be willing to put these things first. And I want to quote from Beaky because this is why we need him on the podcast. I felt like in this <laughs> chapter, he literally went over several things that you and I have either like talked about tongue in cheek or joked about or said yeah. like are things that we've really, we want to, you know, sink our teeth into or really stand up against. One of those things is, and we just read the quote. He says, due to the influence of dispensationalism, many Americans are somewhat blinded to the interconnectedness of scripture by chopping up redemptive history into pieces. Yeah. Dispensationalists sever the organic links that unify the Bible as the grand story of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. And, and you know, before people um, who might be dispensationalists who are listening, before you get all upset about us talking about chopping up the scriptures, that's literally how it's described by many dispensationalists, right? Rightly dividing the word of truth is, first of all, it's a mistranslation, but it's used to talk about separating the scriptures that in reality, don't don't really apply all that much anymore. Um, you know, classic dispensationalists would say that like the Old Testament and probably most of Matthew, like that's for Israel, and then like the the, the other Gospels and uh, Paul's epistles, uh, that that's for the church, uh, sort of, and then Revelation is is for a different kind of part of the church. That's that's for a different thing. So and and all the dispensationalists chop it up a different way, but they take Paul's command to rightly divide the the, the word of God or to rightly discern the word of God. Which when you really understand the Greek, it's really more about cutting a straight path with the word yes. of God. The word of God is the tool that cuts the straight path, not the thing that's being rightly divided. You're rightly dividing with the word of truth. Yes. It's it's talking about properly using the scripture to cut a straight path. But the dispensationalist model takes that and uses that old King James language. And that's 
I don't want to get off on this soapbox. It's a little bit ironic, especially since we're talking about Joel Beakey here, who loves the King James Version. But that's why it's important to understand, if you're going to read the King James Version, you have to understand that some of the some of the phrases in that, in that passage don't mean the same thing in our modern English that they did then. So I think that's absolutely right. And, and that's that's what I think is so um, helpful from this chapter is if you continually remember that the scope, right? When the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession talks about the scope of scripture, it's talking about, it's using the word scope like we might talk about aim. It's the same thing. You think about the scope of a gun. It's it's what you use to aim. So we talk about the scope of scripture. We're not talking about, um, we're not talking about like, the scope from beginning to end, like the, the breadth of scripture. And I think that's sometimes how we read it is we think of like, oh, the scope of scripture, the, the total content of scripture. It's really more talking about what the scripture is oriented at and aimed at. And so when we talk about the scope of scripture, and this is what Beaky's going at in this chapter, the scope of scripture is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's the scope of scripture. And if that's the scope of scripture, the scope of our source content, then the scope of every sermon drawing from that source content, if it wants to be faithful to the Bible, should also be the glory of God through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the right. sanctification of his people. So I think that this, this chapter is just really important for people in our kind of our milieu, many of whom came out of this general evangelicalism that that really, if we're being honest, is is more influenced by dispensationalism than a lot of us realize. So I think that's a really good insight that he brought in here. Yeah, there's something interesting about this chapter with respect to how I think he's addressing, he's of course addressing preachers, but what I found was that he was in many ways trying to say, I think, you say you believe in Jesus, you say that you want to follow after him. Right. Here's what it looks like to actually really preach that gospel, which of course is just the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he talks about, he just does a really good job. People should just pick up this chapter in particular, because again, on the subject of things that he's talked about that we've also talked about, he uses the example of David and Goliath and talking about typology. So I won't even get into that because I'll just save that. But by way of a bit of a spoiler alert, you were not David. But... (laughs) Beyond that, there's two other things I think would be worth us uh, at least mentioning, at least in brief. And one is that he makes this claim, and again, I'll just quote Beaky directly so you can hear his words. He says, ironically, Reformed Christians can fall into Arminian logic by assuming that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are at odds with each other. Yeah. Now, this resonated with me because this is something that we also, you and I have talked about at length, that there is somewhat of a mystery here, and yet we need to push against and refute this kind of general general evangelicalism, which says that men basically just need some kind of decision of faith. However, we define that decision as long as we're making sure that they are making a decision, yeah. that's all that's required. When really what Beaky is pushing against is we all need this spirit-worked regeneration of the heart, that sola fide is actually the fruit of grace. And this does, I think, give us tension. It gives us social tension, I think, because what it means is when you're talking to somebody and you're sensing that the spirit is working some kind of regeneration of their heart, it's easy to want to say, okay, well, here's the next step. Like we just right. talked about this in like the open. Here's the next step. What you need to do is just pray these certain, the certain type of prayer. And then like you're in, like that's the ticket. It's been punched. Even if you're not using this kind of like in an absolute sense, it feels good to be able to say, you know, yeah. for certain because you did these things right. that now you are in the grace of God. 
God, but it's not a work of mere conscience. And this is what's hard, right? Is that even for well-intentioned informed Christians, I think this is where like we fall into the trap he's talking about is we, on the one hand, acknowledge that, well, it's not really like that. We want to stay away from the altar call. It's not just about praying certain words. And yet on the other hand, when we're in the moment of genuinely being with somebody, we're counseling this and sensing the Holy Spirit is working. It's just so much easier socially to want to say to the person, okay, you're in, you're part of the team. Congratulations. It's all good without saying and trying to articulate in a very gentle, but very, I would say almost confrontational way that the fruit of grace is sola fide. But we, we have to see that fruit bear out. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I think I just keep going back to this insight that he's, he's got in this chapter that, that the, the sum and content of every Christian sermon and the difference between a Christian sermon and some other form of speech act, some other form of you know public communication, the sum and content of every sermon ought to be Jesus Christ. And, you know, I think this is one of those chapters. It's funny that we kind of, we kind of bagged on like, uh, like anti-Puritan or un-Puritan writing where it's like seven simple steps, because that's actually something really puritanical about breaking things down into simple steps. And he, he gives several different really specific, like concrete bullet points of things to do. And, and one of the things that I thought was interesting that I've said dozens of times, I said, I was on, um, sipping theology with Austin, uh, this week. And one of the things that you and I've talked about that I've found so instrumental in my own Christian faith is that good, solid Christology and good, solid Trinitarian theology, it unlocks the rest of Christianity, right? It, it takes Christianity, which which in many ways is sort of legalistic and built around rules and practices, and it unlocks it in a way that it's a much more vibrant, I think, a much more vibrant, realistic faith. And he says here on um, page 408, one of the points in constructing a good Christ-centered sermon is to have a robust and systematic Christology, right? And we don't think right. about that. Like, there's so many errors that happen in modern preaching uh, across the board that would be solved by simple, I shouldn't say simple, would be solved by uh, actually be having a robust understanding of systematic theology, of Christology specifically. All of the times that we, um, that people preach about Jesus as just kind of just a good example, right? What would Jesus do? Just do what Jesus would do. Well, you, the, the simple fact is like, you can't do what Jesus would do. Right. Not exactly. because, not because Jesus is some superhero who floats off the ground, but because Jesus is a unique hypostatic union of God and man in a way that there is no principle of sin within him. Right. Well, that, that's not the situation we find ourselves in. We're never going to find ourselves in that situation. And so so preaching what would Jesus do is an unattainable law. And without that systematic category of understanding that Jesus could do what Jesus did and Jesus could avoid sinning in part because Jesus was God and there was no principle of sin within him helps us to understand who we are in relation to that. And that's where now all of a sudden the Holy spirit has to replace the principle of sin in us with the principle of righteousness. And that's, that's the process of sanctification and culminates right. in glorification, right? So all of these things flow out of a proper understanding of, of the hypostatic union on a technical level. And that should flow into, and I'm using preaching now in sort of lowercase P sense, like that should flow into all of our preaching of the gospel wherever we go. If I'm having a conversation with a coworker and and the golden opportunity is set in front of me and say, well, what must I do to be saved? Well, if I tell them, well, you just got to do what Jesus would do. Well, that's not the answer. That's just going to crush them. 
It's just, it's just going to crush them. They may try and they're going to fail and then they're going to walk away. But if I tell them what you have to do is you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you have to, you have to repent of your sins. You have to endeavor to follow Christ and by faith, he will save you and all of these other things will flow out of it. And they do not contribute to your salvation, but in fact, are the result of your salvation. That's a whole different game than what, what just do what Jesus would do. Just follow the 10 commandments and you'll be saved. But that's not, it's funny. You know, I, I love the office and there's that scene, um, Jim and Pan get married and they go to, I think they go to like Costa Rica or somewhere. It doesn't matter. But Michael calls them because he needs some advice on something. And Jim is basically playing with him. And he's like, okay, well, what you got to do is you, and then you'll be saved. Right. That's right. what it's like when we tell a Christian to follow or a non-Christian to follow the 10 commandments, either explicitly or implicitly. When we just basically say like, well, just be a good person. It's like, we're, we're giving them all the information on how to be saved, but we're cutting out all the important parts instead of saying, well, trust in Jesus Christ and he'll redeem you and then you'll be saved. We're just saying, and then you'll be saved. And we don't give them any of the information. And Jesus has to be the content of that, of that gap in our preaching. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I think that it's one of those things where it's, it's not, I like what you said. Like, I'm not trying to make the case that this is all simple because right. in some ways it is because we know that God uses what is weak and what seems poor and what seems foolish. Um, and yet at the same time, we know that even in our massive amount of foolishness and lack of wisdom that we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten us so that we can see what actually is very plain and that yeah. we even really push against. But I think you're right on with that. I think this is where I hope people will take even what we're talking about here, read this book and have some deeper conversations about how they're actually modeling this, how they're trying to live it out. He kind of draws the chapter to a close in this. I'm going to just piggyback on what you said in terms of speaking about repentance. And I like that that's where you went. It, it's interesting that how many gospel, quote unquote, gospel presentations are devoid of the word repentance. Yeah. Because it's so much easier in our culture to have some kind of sense of like mediocre contrition to just feel sorry or to be sorry that you were caught or maybe even just to be sorry that you feel this way because of the consequences of sin. And he emphasizes that not only is there no salvation without repentance, and this idea of he talks about Shub and the idea of turning away completely, yeah. and it's a 180 degree turn. It's not just, again, apologizing, saying, you know, I'm sorry about that, but it's about actually seeking out a type of new life and behavior that's commensurate right. with, in that moment, whatever the emotional response that you had was, it's consistent so that moving forward, you're no longer going back to those same activities that yeah. were the thing, same things that caused you to fall under repentance. But he says, you know, there's no salvation without repentance. And I think all of us would say, of course, for the most part. But he says, he goes further and says, neither is there any spiritual growth. Yeah. So this idea of like what Spurgeon called keeping short accounts with God, that Christ showed us that preaching repentance is not an act of hatred. And this is something our world really struggles with. That is not an act of disagreement or hatred. It's issuing a sentence of condemnation against sinners. It's it's not even exactly that, even though, of course, Christ himself says he didn't come to bring peace, yeah. but to bring a sword. But it's the loving work of a physician, the laboring to heal souls. I've been struggling or thinking about this a lot recently. This idea that what he says here, that this is not issuing a sentence of condemnation against sinners, because that seems like it's overtly a matter of strict punishment, but that it's this idea instead that a physician might give you something that tastes bitter, that is gall right. to your mouth, but is actually the healing salve for whatever it is that ails you. And in so doing, that itself is not condemnation. I think we have to be really careful about that. And he's parsing it in a particular way. Like, what say you yeah. about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right on. Like, we have to. Let me put it this way: our gospel presentation should not be saccharine sweet all the time, right? It's it's not. Um, the gospel is a hard pill to swallow. Like it is because the call to live in Christ is a co- is a call to die to self, right? It's it's no longer I who live; it's Christ who lives in me, and and that's that's not an easy pill to swallow. And so if if we're presenting a gospel. Um, on one level, for those who are those who are made alive in Christ, it's a sweet fragrance, right? Sure. Um, Paul says that it's a it's a f- sweet fragrance. But to those who are um, who are perishing, it's the smell of death. And so I think you're right that we we have to be able to apply a little bit of bitter medicine to the wound, right? You think about um, you know pouring hydrogen peroxide or alcohol on a wound like it hurts but it it heals too i mean it doesn't really heal but you know what i mean like the point is that sometimes things are painful even though they're beneficial for us and i think you know maybe to kind of kind of wind us down on this i think this quote really um really brought it home for me about the whole point of the chapter uh it's on 412 he says therefore the preacher must offer christ to the people and command them to respond to god's invitation to the feast he says, uh, and he's quoting somebody here, but it doesn't say who. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. Oh, he's just quoting Isaiah. Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without pr- uh, without price. And this is the part that I think is the bitter pill. He must press upon people the reality that without faith, they have no life. But with faith, they have life forever in Christ. And the reason that that's a bitter pill for some is because we want to save ourselves and faith expressly is not saving ourselves. That's the key difference between the reformed tradition and the Arminian tradition. It's not necessarily about God's foreknowledge. It's not necessarily about man's uh, role in um, salvation. It's about the fact that faith is nothing in a technical sense. Faith is the resting and receiving of Jesus Christ. The principal acts of faith are resting, receiving, and accepting, right? That's not, that's not the same as uh, saying it's totally passive, but it's, it's not an active thing. And that's, that's what Arminianism says. Faith, faith reaches out and grasps a hold of Jesus Christ. That's what Arminianism says. And that may not sound right. wrong at first, but in reality, that reaching out is an active thing that Arminians say we have to do. And for us, faith is a receptivity that the Holy Spirit gives to us. That's, that's what it is. He, he pries open our hands and then places the most beautiful gift that could ever be imagined in it. And then he closes our hands around it. That's, that's the gospel for Calvinism. And, and I think that's the bitter pill that people resist swallowing is that we really can't do anything. Salvation is entirely at least justification, right? Salvation is a composite word that it encompasses a bunch of things, but justification is entirely outside of us. It happens entirely apart apart from our own consent. In many ways, and, and I learned this from reading um, Herman Witsius, his chapter on, on justification was phenomenal. In many ways, justification is something that happens to us apart from our consent, apart from our acknowledgement, apart from our participation, right? It happens at a point in time and it happens when we express faith or when we have faith, but in another sense, like justification happened in the mind of God, eternity passed and he applies it to us in time. So that's, right. that's the bitter pill. That's the hard part is that we cannot do it ourselves. And the more we try to do it ourselves, the less that it happens. Right. And I think what Beaky is in some ways pointing out is that, 
you can be tricked or lulled into thinking that you are doing something yourself because mm-hmm. it feels good. It feels yeah. right in a way to have this sense that I've accomplished something. It's it's really ironic that for all of humankind, we have this belt, this built up, this penchant to want to do something for ourselves. Like it is, as you said, it it's really hard to receive and to rest, isn't yeah. it? It's really mm-hmm. hard. And I don't know if that's just a matter of because we want to have a sense that we have skin in the game, we have a stake in it, and therefore we can justify or assert our rights and say, I earned something. Yeah. Or whether it's just because we have such a hard time with being given a phenomenal gift. And we feel like, again, we have to do something to hold on to that, substantiate that we were we were worthy of receiving it when the, yeah. obviously it's not the case at all. And that the, the gift of... The gift of Jesus Christ that God gives us is exactly that. And so I guess at the end of this, I was thinking I need to do a lot more resting and receiving. Yeah. And I'm just, it's so easy to want to fight against all that theology. Maybe a funny thought to wind us down. (laughs) Okay. Did you you notice that this, this chapter, he has two conclusion sections? Yes, I did notice that. I thought that was funny. And, and you know, I, I don't know what that's about. It could have just been an, an error. He, he may not have put those headings in. That may have been an editorial thing. But it's funny because, like, everybody's been in that sermon where the pastor's like, all right, in conclusion. And, like, 15 minutes later, he's like, all right, in conclusion. So it just made me laugh. It made me <laughs> chuckle a little bit. I was like, ever the preacher who ke- keeps on concluding his sermon. I always make that joke that like a good preacher always uses the words in conclusion at least three times, which I presume yeah. is just to keep like the congregation in rapt attention. Yeah. Just like the second coming. You never know when it's actually going to end. You know, I won't, I won't say his name because other than this one element, he was actually a pretty decent preacher, but I was, I was a part of a church one time where the pastor would, would more often than not would preach basically three or four sermons in one sitting. And like, it would be like, he'd have his main structure of his sermon and it'd be like, all right, here's the three points to the sermon. And right. then he, he'd get through to like the third point and be like, all right, here's the four points of this third point. And then like, oh, well, here's the fifth, the five points of the fourth point of the third point. Um, and it, it's just, it's funny because like crafting a sermon is hard. Like it's not an easy thing. And it, it's just funny to sort of see that parallel in this book. Like I said, I don't know how it came to be. It may have been intentional. Who knows? But um, it was just funny to see two different sections labeled conclusion. Wait, did you go to church with John Flavel? <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. I'm a time traveler. Super nerdy joke. I mean, yeah. you are right that one of the things I've got, the Puritans that is great, is that it was super organized, right? Like, can you imagine if you were sitting under their preaching? That is the best preaching to take notes on. That's yeah. a note taker's dream because everything was so highly organized, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. That's just the content that you get with this podcast. That's totally free of charge. It's true. Although we also do that when we're like, all right, so let's bring it down. And then we go on for another 20 minutes. So like, all right, let's actually bring it down now. <laughs> exactly. It's because we're Puritans at heart. We're Yeah. All we're doing is following in the wonderful <laughs> example that's been passed on to us. Yeah. So at the risk of that happening again, we should just shut this thing down, right? We should. Yeah. After you, my friend. Oh, okay. Until next one. <laughs> and I'm stuttering over that. I feel like I feel like the bug is back in my yeah, throat. Yeah, well, it's because it's the Lord's Day and all the embarrassing stuff happens on the Lord's Day, apparently. <laughs> That's true. Sometime, sometime, and I know we're not landing it now, but sometime we should do an episode where we just like talk about stuff that either we've experienced or like stories of like, or maybe we should have our brothers and sisters call in with those types of things. Funny stories. Yeah. yeah, And do like a bonus episode of, 
know, like funny when you get the things. giggles during a sermon. Yes. I mean, I think it's happened. It's got to have happened to almost everybody, right? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, until next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. Oh.